0: In today's episode of the podcast, we had a man that rarely needs an introduction. It feels like every single person in the triathlon or cycling community of Australia knows who he is, and that is Dr. Mitch Anderson. If you don't know who he is, he's a former professional uh, triathlete, former uh, Ironman winner. Uh, He's also the 12 and 24-hour world record holder, which we have done a podcast on in the past, if you want to listen to that. uh, He is an expert in a lot of things, more specifically, he is a physiotherapist, a doctor and a surgeon all combined into one, and he's the go-to man for a lot of triathletes and cyclists when they're dealing with injury or want uh, improvements in performance. Uh, And more specifically for today, uh, we are talking about everything to do with fixing your bike position. And from Mitch's perspective, we talk a lot about and dive into the biomechanics and physiology and uh, physiological adaptations and differences that bike position, different bike positions can create uh, on your TT bike or on your road bike, and so uh, this was a great episode. Obviously, um, there's a lot to dive into, and we'll just, just we'll get straight into it because we love chatting to Mitch most of all. Uh, he's a good friend of ours, uh, and <laughs> he's uh, very fun-natured. And as you hear in any episode that you have on a podcast, he's a natural, and so it's always an enjoyable listen. So, without further ado, here is Dr. Mitch Anderson. Dr. Mitch Anderson, welcome back to the Travelo Podcast. Party on, Wayne. <laughs> Great to have you here, mate. Uh, thank you for coming oh. on.
1: Hello, Jordan. Hello, Jerry, uh, and gentle listeners and watchers. <laughs> yes, your, uh,
0: your podcast that you came on last time and told the epic story of your 12 and 24-hour twenty four hour event uh, is one of our most listened to episodes, and uh, you spoke about a lot more on that podcast. So if anyone hasn't listened to it, we recommend going back and listening through. But today we are talking about fixing your bike position and all things bike fit. Now, you're a man of many talents, Dr. Mitch, uh, as everyone knows. And one of them is bike fit and bike position. And to break the 12-hour and 24-hour record, you have to have a pretty good position. You don't want to be wasting any watts, I imagine, for one second in that event. Uh, So we're going to dive into it. I want to start off by asking, uh, what's what's your priority with your position? What's your priority with the bike fit? What's the first thing you're thinking about and, and trying to achieve?
1: So when I see people in here, and I probably do yeah, look, I reckon I average three bike fits a week in the end, and that's sort of been going on for about three years now. And look I become more and more sophisticated as I've gone through, but my message is always the same, that it has to be a comfortable, powerful fit, then aerodynamic for performance. Because if if you try and place aero and comfort, oh sorry, and try and place it ahead of comfort, then you'll never push good watts. And it, it's that whole thing. You can have some absolute monstrous people, but they can't push it in their time trial position. And so you think well, there's no point in being a monster if you can't actually get it out in your time t- time trial position or in your own position.
2: Mm. When, when you are preparing for those world records, how much time did you spend tinkering and changing your position? Because obviously the event would determine the comfort you're going to be sitting in a spot for 12 hours or 24 hours compared to a Ironman who's possibly going to be between four and six and a half and a half Ironman, you know, two and three and a half, etc. Does it change by the amount of time that you're going to be spending in that position?
1: Yeah. So it definitely does. I mean, as, as you know, um, for the sorts of time trials that road cyclists are doing, uh, then you can be, um, more aerodynamic and put comfort a little to the side. But I'd, I'd venture that even in road time trial, late road time trialing now, they're erring more and more about upright tight positions, which mean they can get out big power, because I don't think we've necessarily equated um, extremity of, of, of position with, with a low CDA. So you can get really—I want to get you can get really low at the front end, but it's not necessarily that slippery. Whereas the shape of your shoulders, um, the matching of your helmet, um, even uh, getting your obviously your elbows in the right position can make um, a huge difference to watts. Um, so, to answer your question, I think—I uh, mean—I wish I could have had my um, triathlon career again. You probably—you probably say the same, Jerry. <laughs> Um,
2: well, Mitch, this- they didn't have time trial bikes. <laughs> I think we were still riding uh, steel wheels and penny farthings. Uh-huh.
1: So, you know, the reason I'm saying that is that I put up my position by 60 mil. So I was 60 mils higher um, in the 12 and 24 hour, but I was pushing better watts for longer. And I mm-hmm. sort of, I really wish that um, I had understood more, more what I know now about bike fitting uh, and go back and tell my younger self, hey, just less aggression on position and, you know, and, and get what's where it counts. Um, I think, Jordan, that, well, probably what's the first thing I'd, I'd really like to go through is the effect of your upper body position on breathing biomechanics. Mm. So I think that's one of the things that uh, people don't really think about how what the, what the energy cost is of of breathing, and actually, it makes a huge contribution to all um, well, the energy cost of exercising. Because as your respiratory rate goes up and up and up, well, there's a there's a huge cost of oxygen for your respiratory muscles. Now, the better trained you are, well, in the same way that your when your skeletal muscles become better trained, your respiratory muscles become better trained too. So, there's definitely an and, they, and therefore. It costs less oxygen to run them. So part of the adaptation about being an elite athlete or from a, from a, a Joe blog athlete to an elite athlete is training your respiratory system. So I'd venture then one of the other reasons to be less extreme in position is to allow a time for adaptation of your breathing muscles or your respiratory muscles. So, the three main things I'd say are, and you will everyone will have seen this, that when an athlete finishes an event, it doesn't matter what distances it is, they will put their hands on their thighs mm. and they will breathe in and out. So for those of us who are watching this on, on the podcast, um on the video, the hands go on their thighs. Now that's anchoring the respiratory muscles, the upper respiratory muscles. Um uh, so you know, the Uh, essentially not the diaphragm and not the intercostal muscles, but these muscles that lift your clavicle up and actually create some extra room here for the lung to expand into. So where you have your hands is important. It anchors your respiratory muscles. And that's why this position I don't think is as effective at anchoring Mm -hmm. your hands as this position. So, And, you know, I guess I've got got my little barrow to push in terms of, you know, my background and um, having come as a respiratory physiotherapist, obviously, you know, I come at it different than, say, I don't know, any other fitter. Um, The second thing is your ribs, they bucket handle up and down like this, okay? So when you breathe in, if you look at it from front on, they're going like that and expanding your lungs, bucket handling up and down, so your intercostal muscles, i.e. the muscles between all of your ribs, have to move those ribs up like a, a piano accordion, essentially. Mm-hmm. So the tighter you have your elbows, the more resistance there is for your intercostals to work against. So even though this is an extremely aerodynamic position...
2: You can't breathe.
1: You can't breathe in and out. Mm-hmm. You're exactly right, Jerry. And then the third thing is... When you get... Oh, hang oh, wow. on. When you wow. get bent further and further forward, you're increasing your intra-abdominal pressure. So then your diaphragm, which is shaped like two domes like this, which when you breathe in, flattens out and pushes against your abdominal contents and then relaxes and goes up. So again, the more intra-abdominal pressure you've got, the more resistance you've got to breathe against. So the more you're bent double, the more pressure your diaphragm has to work against, therefore, increased work of breathing, increased cost, oxygen cost. Mm-hmm. And don't forget the other element of that is that your your gut, especially in the long races, is likely to be full of contents, i.e., food and fluid. Mm-hmm. So and even higher pressure in your gut from contents. So, you know, there's this three axes that I'd say hand position elbow position, forward-aft with the, with your elbows mm-hmm. to really unload and de-work de the respiratory muscles.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I want to start by, by asking how do you find that line straight away because um, I've seen plenty of, example, of examples of pro athletes doing variations of exactly what you just said, some having their hands on top of each other, some having their elbows touching. Um, even on the weekend there was – um, the Collins Cup was on in the triathlon and most athletes had their elbows together and uh, Ellie Salthouse, the Australian, had her elbows super wide and she was one of the few that had that. So it's obviously a different preference for everyone based on what they've been told. You know, how are you finding this line between all those three main points?
1: So I never went in oh, – I went to the wind tunnel a couple of times as a, as a triathlete, um, but by and large, uh, I just did it by – um, I think the, the, the main thing I noticed about, um, I guess, the, the Collins Cup, or sorry, what I think about when I, when I hear about um, the positions that athletes have got, especially with regards to elbow width, is that when your knees are going up and down like this, like pistons, if they're not being covered up by something, then they're generating a lot of turbulence. Turbulence equals more resistance. So, and you know, looking at Ellie Salthouse, I'd equate her position much more like a track cyclist who, when they're in their time-time positions, they have big wide arms. Like, they're not doing... Guys on the track aren't doing this. They're mm. not doing the praying mounting position. And they're at higher speeds with higher air resistance. Mm. So well, why aren't we more like trackies? Mm. You know, and I know that they're trying to get maximum power out, but I guess that's my point, that... If you're really looking to get maximum power out of your position and you should be doing that Mm. before you're really an elite cyclist where you've developed your respiratory system it probably matters less as you get more and more elite what your position is you know (laughs) within reason and obviously obviously you want to get everything optimized but you know let's just say the Collins Cup guys, well, they've got well, well-developed systems and they can probably cope with this. Mm. As swimmers too, their, their mm. upper respiratory muscles mm. are more developed than most people. So mm. and probably get away with it. Whereas, I don't know, it just makes sense to me to cover up your knees with your elbows. Mm. I mean, oh, I might be crazy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> There's so many things I want to say. Um, one of the things, being too compact in that position and exactly what you're talking about with, you know, the, the diaphragm, the abdominals, the the person who looks nice and long and, and seems to have no creases in their body yes. and is stretched out, that's giving themselves more opportunity to have that diaphragm breathing in and out, have yes. their abdominals not being crushed. Um, for the person who's kind of in that hunched down low head position and the back's arched up high, it yes. doesn't, to me, it doesn't, looks as nothing to do with it but looking aesthetically the person who's long and stretched out seems way more effortless and, and and easier to you know does that equate to riding better power that's you know so what what you're saying about the breathing diaphragm and, and abdominals is being stretched out a, a more achievable and desirable position that you think will actually be more benefit to you well
1: absolutely i think jerry but you're, you're you're on the money there um, you know, the way that I think about things when I see um, athletes in their, say, time trial position or in their road position, I try and think about myself do they look like a wound up spring? Because if you don't look like you're really ready to go, you know, really get power down on the, on the pedals, well, your body probably isn't in a, in a position to do that. So I guess, yeah, that's my aesthetic when I look at people is do they look like a wound up spring? Um, and I think the, the longer setup to a point, you're absolutely right. It's, it's lowering the intra abdominal pressure and um, allowing uh, an easier air entry because obviously, yeah, it reduces work of breathing. Um, I think you know w- one of the things that I'll say though about well, there's two there's two elements that I'd really like to talk about is that um, with with the praying mantis position or you know this position per se the The issue isn't isn't that it's it's not aero, it's also that it's difficult to move forward and back on your saddle. And for triathletes who are doing longer time trials, um, it's incredibly important that they can move on their saddle and also move on their, um, their elbow pads forward and back. And I would say anywhere between, say, plus or minus 20 mil on the saddle, and probably plus or minus 10 mils on the hand position or the elbow position, which allows then you to shuffle, I guess, and get comfortable, uh, depending on the gradient up or down, or who knows, it's a, it's a headwind and you can't, you know, you can't really move much at all. So you really need to, you know, just have a small micro movement. So being able to move, I think, is important. Mm. The second thing to think about, or I try and think about when I'm fitting someone, is uh, in particular, the glutes. Because of all the people I see in my clinic, the thing that is most poorly executed is core or core and glute activation. And I know that Jerry, you've got a, a really entertaining set of uh, of uh, activities that you give your athletes to do, which I think it's great because it gives people an awareness, almost as if you're trying to. Um, get a, a, an electrical wire and thread it from here all the way to their abdomen or all the way to their glutes and be able to get things consciously switched on and then it should become then automatic. So, you know, that whole thing. Remember PE? Did you do PE when you were a kid, Jordan?
0: Yes. Yeah, right through, right
1: through. Yes, yes, you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know how um, a skill goes in those different phases where it eventually becomes an autonomous skill. But you need sort of that cognitive process to actually do that. And that buys in a bit to the 10,000 hours type guff, which, I don't know, that's not, that, that has been debunked, you know, especially with people like Roblick, you know, going around, um, you know, winning three grand.
2: As a, a ski jumper, yeah.
1: As a ski jumper. Like, doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I think some people, just, like swimmers are born, not made, you know, some people just have better body awareness than others. So, For for trivelo athletes or listening to the podcast, getting to be able to activate core and glute at will so you can then think about it while you're training is a really highly useful task. So what I was trying to get to in a very long way is that your muscles are a ratchet. So they work on an actin and myosin cross-bridging system. But if you think about it like a very simple ratchet system, so up and about. Mm-hmm. If we're aiming to get people's glutes and quads, the main drivers of cycling, obviously we've been focusing a bit on the respiratory muscles. If we're aiming to get them working in this midway position where they've got the most number of cross bridges, when you have the greatest uh, torque or ability to generate torque, so the lever of your crank is between, say, 2.30 and 5 o'clock. Because, you know, anything before that, we don't have a great um, great long lever to push on when it's that long. But from about 2.30 onwards, so that's when you're aiming, you know, when I'm looking at people and bike-fitting them, I'm thinking, have I got their glutes and their quads working in synchrony in that mid-range position between 2.30 and 5 o'clock? And so the only issue... Getting back to the very start of this, is mm-hmm. that if you become too stretched out, then your glutes, which attach to the top of your hip, they can be too stretched out to really work until, um, or they they become they they get turned on the wrong part of the of the stroke cycle. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So th- I mean, there's a lot um a lot involved in the whole process, and there's some really specific points that you're focused on here. If an athlete walks into your bike fit kind of unpack for me the steps that you take and what are you looking at first and how are you changing things? What's the what's the process of getting them into a better position?
1: So one of the reasons why I don't do full-time fitting is that, um, well, it's laborious. It really takes, you know, it takes a good 90 minutes. Um, and also I like the, the fitting process to be involved with, it I mean, Overall, and, you know, my mum hates it that I do bike fitting because she's just like,
2: Mitch, you're a doctor. (laughs) She's
1: not an old Greek nonna, but, you know, she just wants me to treat patients. But, you know, I think uh, that... You you actually
2: are treating patients because if they don't fit on the bike properly, they're going to injure themselves and they're going to be your patient anyway.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's true. But And I think being before that, Jerry is that, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here as, as part of our audience, is that exercise in general is the best preventative medicine that we could all hope for, you know, to a point. Obviously, there's an element where, where you're either getting injured or you're doing too much and hurting your, hurting your heart or your blood vessels. But by and large, exercising a lot makes you a lot healthier. So, you know, I want people to exercise because it's good for them. And so I think cycling as a whole is a great sport because there's, it's got a low injury rate. Mm. That said, you know, and one of the things I do touch on early, Jordan, in answer the question, is that small small changes make a big difference. So when you're doing 100 revs per minute, uh, mm. it's multiplied by, let's say, a 2 mil change for 60 minutes times mm. 5 hours. You can make, you know... Forty meters change to someone's position mm. by making a two or three mil change of their of their saddle or their cleats or whatever it is. So that's why you know, realistically, one of the main things I say to people is, if you want to fiddle with your position, well, document it. You know, like like steal I don't, I don't care steal my thing like my bike fitting um, yeah. system and just basically write down all your positional stuff. And then make some small changes and say, does that make me feel more or less comfortable? Mm-hmm. Or am I working my glutes more? Can I feel I'm switching on? So I want to give people, you know, some tools to play with. That's the main thing I'm trying to do when someone comes in for a bike fit. And also try and give them the liberty, the confidence to make changes themselves because I don't want them coming back and seeing me every time they're uncomfortable. I want them mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, let's say give, give a man a fishing line and
0: Itching to fish well, rather than fish for him, yeah. <laughs> correct. Yeah.
1: So um I think what we go through is is to start off with is, is their um in terms of their is their injury profile. And that's why I think it marries up really nicely with um you know sports medicine and physio, is that I'm trying to see people through the lens of I guess usually an injury, sometimes it's just discomfort, but usually an injury and prevent that from happening again and or identify the the problem with the fit and teach them along the way the things they can do. So getting a past history, and, you know, I take a little medical history just to make sure I'm not missing something, you know, I don't know, cancer of the butt or something before (laughs) you uh, get them sitting on the bike. But um, then I take a little video so that we can have a look at what they looked like before and I do some key points. Um, As I said, I take a systems approach because – if you do something the same every single time, and I reckon I've probably done 500 fits now, at least in the last um, couple of years, as soon as you start going away from your system, we start making mistakes? So the first thing I always do once I've taken a video, taken through the video, is measure the bike. Make sure you know what you're going to go back to if, you know, the, the seat's dropped or, you know, we want to know how much we've changed the bike. Mm-hmm. The second thing we do then, check the cleats. If you check your cleats, well, that's the only thing that when you clip in, you can't move. So once they're in, they're in. So, you know, I think people make common mistakes about just sticking their cleats on any old place or any old how, and then expecting that they can compensate for a poor cleat position. Um, uh, we should dive a little bit more into that um, mm. down the track. Yep. But um, then I go through, okay, uh, we make some changes, uh, you know, I guess... And I always start at the saddle first. You should always change saddle position first and then have the handlebars to fit, not the other way around. Because we're aim- obviously aiming for power first and then aerodynamics later or, you know, the other comfort stuff later. Mm-hmm. And then take a video, go through how much things have changed. And there's usually some exercise in this and this I get to people to do as well. If not, an x-ray, a blood test, or whatever else we might have spoken about from a medical perspective. So I guess that's a bit of a...
2: Look, it's always intrigued me, and a lot of the listeners um, have experienced this because most of them are um, predominantly switching between time trialing or triathlon or cycling. So, um, in terms of um, you know, I see almost every athlete able to push better power on their road bike than they can in their TT position. Yep. Whether, whether it's on a bike with clip-ons or whether it's in a TT bike. Um, same person and, you know, extraordinarily nearly 40 watts less on the time trial bike. Um, yep. Biomechanically, what is what is happening that's wrong, that's preventing them from pushing? Because the, old, the, the goal for me as a coach is to say to them, right, you can push 300 watts on the road bike and you can push 270 on the TT bike. Let's get your TT bike to 300 and you'll be a better bike rider as a time yeah. trialist. What, what's biomechanically stopping them, Mitch?
1: Glutes. It's absolutely glutes. So um, by tipping forward, you're extending or lengthening out that ratchet, and the glutes just aren't able to do the work at the right point in the pedal stroke. And that's why, you know, I'm constantly at odds with athletes about um, reducing the extremity of their position because all I think about is arrow, where it should be. How can I get my wattage out first, and then change the arrow afterwards? So, and you're absolutely right, Jerry, that when you're in a nice upright position and you're used to engaging your glutes, then of course you get high wattage. There's also, as we touched on earlier, the respiratory effort that is definitely less when your your arms are nice and open on the on the on the tops, and I think. You know, one of, the, one of the key things that I get athletes to do is make sure they've got a similar length crank on their, you know, when I say similar, within two and a half mils. Um, we definitely should touch on crank length too. Um, uh, make sure they've got a, a similar saddle height and that their saddle is flat. So word to the wise, if anyone has their saddle tipped, you're on a hiding to nothing. Because, again, if you think about your pelvis from side on, if you're tipping your pelvis, like if you tip your saddle down, if you're tipping your pelvis forward, again, you're asking your glutes to lengthen and lengthen and lengthen, as well as your hamstrings, and you're just taking them out of the game again. So have to have a flat saddle so you can then shift forward and back on that saddle with a really stable platform to work, to work on. And, you know, Jerry, the other part of the equation, especially for UCI legal guys, is that they don't have a stable base to work from because they're not sitting on much saddle because everyone's sitting on the very tip of their saddle. Mm. And that's, you know, the biggest, I think, argument for the stubby saddle is that you get more support for your sit bones if you're either a stubby saddle or... uh, can't believe I'm saying it, a split saddle. Um, uh, and you know, the reason I'm dirty on split saddles is that um, anything that isn't um, fixed uh, by something between those two points is that you always end up with one bent down, one bent up. So if you're gonna use an Adamo saddle, you have to replace it regularly. And if you're finding that it's you know three or four mils depressed, Why are you spending so much time on that cheek? You know, there's got to be something wrong with the position Mm. if you're not symmetrical. So, and the biggest point of asymmetry is usually that athletes, when they put their cleats on, they basically put them same left, same right, exactly the same point, exactly the same orientation, which is the intuitive thing to do. Mm.
0: right?
1: But people's feet are never the same size. Yeah. So, you know, your cleats should not, unless you are a suit model and you're perfectly symmetrical, which, well, I guess we all are, beautiful people we are, <laughs> um, unless you're that, that sort of person, well, I guarantee you, and people, some people actually don't, have never noticed they've got one foot bigger than the other, but usually there's two to four mils different. And so there should be two to four mils different in terms of forward aft of your one cleat on the other. So that you're then pushing down the same point of each foot equally, and that usually then um straightens people up what's
2: when when they come in to see you what are what are the things that strike strike you as the most common mistakes that that they're presenting to you with
1: seven too high right so yeah i think like oh, it's. This is the most annoying part of my bike fitting. Is during COVID, my wife Ethne, has been working here at the clinic, and she walks past every bike fit, says, "Ah, your saddle's a bit high, mate." <laughs>
2: That's gold.
1: And you know what? <laughs> She's right. usually right. Yeah, it's yeah. even more maddening. Um, but, but the thing is that I've spoken with about it because I'm so annoyed about it because. Um, it just makes no sense because then what it does is it, it pushes people further onto the nose of their saddle and then they can't get best use out of their, out of their glutes. So, yeah, it's it's always saddle too high. That's the most common mistake. Um, and then the second most common mistake is um, reach too long. So because we've had this um, rarity or, sorry, the um, The COVID overlay has caused people to probably purchase bikes that they were were available rather than something they'd been well fitted on in the bike shop. Mm. A lot of people have bought bikes one size too big. Now you can compensate for that by changing stem length, but you then compensate. You then have to compromise on steering. So if you imagine, if you're you know the the general, I don't don't have a rule here. Um, you know the general. stem length is, say, call it a 110, right? Um, if you then have a have a bike that's one size too big, well, your equivalent then is you're on a 90mm stem. And if you're on a 90mm stem, then every little movement is twitchier. So width of your handlebars makes a difference and length of your um, uh, stem makes a big difference. So don't compromise on the size of your bike due to availability. You're just better off being on an old bike that fits you, than a new bike mm. you're gonna to have to then compromise on. You know, I had a, had a guy come in here on a $25,000 um, custom built bicycle, a Parley, 25 grand. And we had to buy a shorter stem for it and mm. had to buy a different seat post for it because it didn't fit in properly. Mm. Which, you know, like the, the bike shop should be doing this, right? They should be making sure that it's, it's absolutely mm. right. So. I guess to finish off my point on this, if you're not sure about what size, size bike you have should have, well, do a bike fit before. Like you know, the mm. reason why we have jigs in the first place, where you can just you know dial things in and out, mm. is so then you don't make a ten thousand dollar mistake, mm. and then you have to compromise by having like a short stubby stem on there, or even worse, a stem erection where you have to turn the stem upside down. <laughs> you know, like no one wants that. It just it's got no panache.
0: Makes perfect sense. Do you want to dive into the cleats more, cleats and crank length more? Because I know those points were pretty important ones that you, yeah. you pointed out.
1: Yeah, I would. Um, so I, I think the beauty of this, the shorter crank, um, as long as it's matched with an intelligent change to the, um, the cleat position. So let, let me just, uh, oh, here we go. I'll use my stylus for this. Um, I know that everyone not seeing this on um, the video, but essentially, the shorter your crank gets, then um, the more your cleat position matters. So essentially, if a if a cleat oh, let's, let's mention like that, so if a cleat is further back, it increases the apparent length of your crank. If a cleat is further forward, it reduces the apparent length of your crank. So if you're running a 165 crank, but You've got your um, cleats slammed, or you're probably compensating for having the shorter cranks in terms of leverage. But you're, you're and you know, you're almost certainly to be um, uh, thinking a lot about your fit and quite extreme because uh, you know it's 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 helpful for your hip angle to have a shorter crank. It gives you better clearance. It dictates, so that when the crank is, um, is vertical, it dictates the amount of hip flexion that you get, as does how low your elbows are. So those two things that make such a big difference. And that's why I think, by and large, we've gone to shorter cranks to allow better clearance and get the, get the glutes engaged a bit better.
2: And you're on, board, uh, you're on board with that. You're happy with that development over the last 20 years. That's been a real change because we used to, yeah. as a little guy, I was at 170, and I got told by an expert in 1990-something I should be on 175 just so I could get longer leverage.
1: Yeah, that's, it's totally changed, hasn't it? The, um, and I think it, it's been dictated to a bit by being able to have, well, I mean, no, ones. You know steel bikes back then. You know, and mm. the steerer lengths. The sorry, the, the steerers were a lot higher, um, but I guess in fact they were funny bikes. They weren't they, Jerry?
2: they were twenty four inch front wheel.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Don't get out of the saddle. <laughs> um or turn. Think, Yeah, the you know, and reading all about the um, the release of Shimano uh, Durast 12 speed this week. But, uh, as we've gotten more gears, there is more ability to. Um, recruit, you know, better ratios and, you know, the, the 34 tooth is, um, is in the mix, which, you know, you, just, you would have been laughed at as a mountain bike racer with a 34 mm. tooth on, but whereas now it's, it's become the norm. In the same vein, in road racing, the shorter cranks means athletes are able to hold, you know, um, I guess, uh, respectable uh, RPMs to maintain their power on the steep climb. So, uh, you know, and like I can imagine you sitting around on 175 cranes, Jerry. And I, you know, I tried them as well. I and I was no good. I I I ended up on 172.5s and then shortened to 170s for mm. um for my 12 and 24 hour efforts. And look, I think it it depends on your foot size too. So because that cleat placement can be so important, and I think because one of the other things that I look at when I look at um, people's bodies right at the start is that some people have big calves, and I know you do, Jerry. Like you've got big, big calves that like tearing big but, um, calves. I don't know, <laughs> tearing <laughs> runs in the family. It's a
2: gene, um, like yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is a, yeah. Um, it's called if people want to Google it, it's called pseudo hypertrophy. Um, anyway, um, anyway, yeah, so I guess if someone's got tiny calves. Well, it doesn't really matter if you're doing a lot of midfoot cycling. But uh, on the other hand, yeah, you part of the, you know, a good cycling um, position, you'll see it, like, people are ankling. And, you know, you get less ankling the, the more you put the cleat backwards. So, and, and I think to get the best out of your calves, well, you don't get anything out of them if you know you're, you're cycling from the midfoot because obviously it's reducing the leverage of your calves. So it's taking into account the the um, uh, yes, yeah, somebody's body shape um, as, as when you fit them so that you know you're not it's it's not one size fits all. So you know I'm not having people come in and say you should be on 165 cranks because it's not taking into account their risk profile. You know I've got people who have come in who are six foot six tall. And there's no way I'm going to put them on, obviously, 165 cranks. Um, but, yeah, you, it's got to be horses for courses. And I think, you know, shortening off your road cranks by 2.5 mils is a really sensible way to go. But that makes sense to me. And then, you know, if you're really going for a short time trial where you can hold an extreme position, well, maybe you need one six five or so 167.5s.
0: You say that... Uh- know, yeah, everyone is different and everyone needs their own kind of fit, but you know, you're know, you not going to see um, that much variety across every athlete. There's going to be a lot of similarities, and therefore universal principles that are going to be the same. And so I guess if, if someone's just at home listening and they're thinking, all right, well, I want to check my bike position and see how I am. And obviously getting a bike fit is the best outcome. But if how can someone at home just kind of look at themselves and acknowledge whether they're in a good position, quote unquote, good position or not?
1: Well, let me just disappoint all the listeners by telling them, <laughs> you're not special. None of you are special. <laughs> I think this is, you know, I don't know if you remember in The Incredibles, um, which is that Disney movie, or maybe even a Pixar movie way back when, but, you know, that whole thing that if everyone's special, nobody is. And <laughs> it, it's the best truism that, that I've ever heard because essentially –
2: uh, Bruce McAvaney will be very upset with you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, realistically, it's that whole thing that yeah, common fits commonly fit most people. So, essentially, don't you, you're not an outlier, you're not a unicorn until proven otherwise, and most people fit in the in the two standard deviations from the moon. So, if you really want to do a good job of have, doing a self-fit, my suggestion is. Number one, set up a, your phone on a seat beside your trainer and pedal for 30 seconds in your time trial position, if that's what you're doing, or your road position, where your hands are on the hoods. So many people, like, take notice of where your hands sit or how far away they are, are from the hoods because lots of people are just using the shoulder of the bar 50 mils away from their... Mm. From their um, uh, hoods, which means the bike's too long for you. If you're self-selecting that position all the time, the bike's too long or the top, the t- the, the top tube is too long or you need it's to shorten short. your stem. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's probably a, a, an element of both. So don't oversize your frame. Don't have a stem that's too long. You should be able to just bend your elbows. Um, so get 30 seconds of film from the side and then have a look at it and your heel should be coming down throughout the 230 to 530 zone. If it is coming down, well, you know you're in a pretty good position. The the second way to check in terms of, um, I guess, your saddle position is right, is to look from behind. So you should see there's two bumps, which which are called your PSISs, your posterior superior iliac spines. Um, They're little divots you can see on people. Or you can look at the iliac crest, which look like that from behind. If they're dead still, you see it's not too high. It still might be too low, but you'll be able to tell that by having looked at the side. So video from behind, video from from side on tells you all you need to know. And, in fact, uh, I had a mate who lives in California who's a triathlon coach wanting me to do uh, um, bike fits by correspondence, which you can easily do. It's not optimal because, obviously, you then rely on someone to do the tinkering. Um, and Jano would say from... Giant South Yarra, that I shouldn't be doing tinkering either, but I would have the same assertion about him sometimes. Um, so, <laughs> so essentially, uh, you know, from the side, from behind, you can get a lot of information that's really useful. And you know what? I think the best way to, to learn, even about your own position, is to look at other people and try and take note of what other people look like, try and pick errors in their peddling style and think, well, am I doing that? Because, you know, the, I guess that's the way that I, I learned a lot about fitting It's just watching people pedal for 20 years in close proximity, you know, and trying to say, oh, that looks funny. Why does it look funny? Oh, it's probably the seat's too high, or why are they looking lopsided? You know, because, tr- for instance, if someone looks lopsided and I, I change their cleat position so to make sure that, you know, they're a little bit, uh, they're pushing down from the same part of the cleat, of the, sorry, their foot, Every now and again, someone will have a leg length discrepancy that needs to be corrected, so by a couple of shoes. But it doesn't happen commonly. It's usually just the cleats misplaced. So, you know, just look for the big ticket items. Don't come in, go, go and say, oh, I must have one leg than the other. It's probably not that. It's probably mm-hmm. just that you got one foot longer than the other.
2: Mm-hmm. I was just going to say on that, it's incredible how important uh, the cleats are to each particular person, as you said, because no one's feet are identical. No one's length, leg length is, is left and right is the same. And and when I changed new shoes and put the, the old cleats back on and and tried to get the exact exact position that I had previously that was working for me and thought I was okay and then started riding and all of a sudden had some knee pain. And, and oh, what's going on? Why have I sort of all of a sudden got knee pain? And I didn't even think about, you know, A week later, I I just changed cleats. And clearly that was the reason. I didn't have the cleats. And they were literally, Mitch, millimetres wrong. Yep. And and that's how exact it needs to be, isn't it? Because your body has an adaptation to a position from 30 years of riding. And the minute you move it, um, it's going to take time or it's going to cause an injury.
1: Yeah. And and I think when you bring up a good point, when someone, if you've got an injury, a cycling injury, take the tape measure to your bike. And just make sure that because, you know, what, and, an hour, and a sorry, a torque wrench and just make sure nothing's slipped because it just, it's just commonly happens that someone will come in and they'll say, oh, um, I've got this injury because my seat post has slipped and I didn't notice for two weeks. And you think, how can you not notice for two weeks? But mm. it's one of those things that it should be your first go-to. If you feel uncomfortable, make sure all your bolts are tight because it's probably that something's come loose and your saddle's dropped um, or, yeah, so, something's moved. And, and and I guess on that point, one of the other key points that when people come and see me is make sure your bolts have grease on them. You know, it seems like a simple thing to do, but you can't torque something up correctly if it's a dry bolt. So just make sure whenever you're changing something on your bike, use your torque wrench, don't crack a seat post, um, but also make sure there's some grease in the bolts. Same with your, your cleats. Like, don't put your don't put your cleats on without putting grease on, on the bolts first because, you know, drilling out a shoe, the worst.
0: It's great advice. I really wanted to clarify one point you touched on before about the heel. Um, as you were indicating the heel position between that real strong range of 230 down to what was it? Uh, two, five, 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 yeah, yeah. 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 Were you indicating that at that, at some point the heel would drop below the toes? Um because I do see variation in even pro cyclists where their heel is either above or or maybe flat or uh, yeah. Are you indicating that at some point it would would go below to for a better position or more power?
1: So um, I'm of the um, the belief that common things happen commonly, and I've already already pointed that out. So um, when it comes to talking about unicorns, i.e. the pro peloton, I, I don't take my I do not take what those guys are doing as bread and butter, because you know, as far as I'm concerned, they're all outliers. They have to be to be in the position they are. Mm-hmm. You know, you've only got to look at Lance Armstrong, right? And I know, you know, yes, he was juiced up. So what? Most of them, most of them were are now still. And his position was very toey, like you know, he's, he was a really, really toey cyclist. In the same way that he was a really high cadence cyclist, you know, well before his time. And on probably 175 cranks, Jerry. So we probably don't have excuses. Um, uh, so, you know, when I'm saying, that you're, I just say your heel should be coming down between 230 and, say, 5 or 5.30. Because what I'm trying to get across is that you want to be doing work on your crank and pushing down the whole way. But if your heel's having to come up late in the pedal stroke, well, you're not pushing down hard enough. So essentially your seat has got to be too high and it might be that it started here and then it's come to here at the bottom of the pedal stroke and it's still up, but at least it's coming down through the pedal stroke. And around that corner, it's probably okay for your heel to come up a little bit between 5.30 and 6. But realistically you should, you should be aiming to be in the drive zone. So the way I try and explain it to people, it's like pulling your foot into a gumboot that that's what gets your glutes engaged and if your heels not going, like people at home, try and turn your glutes on while you're pushing on your toes. It's not an impossible. Mm. Um, so it's just that whole thing that there's, there's i call them um, PNF patterns. Um, you know, there's this proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation that you do for people to turn on certain muscle groups. And the thing you do to turn on people's glutes is get their is get their heels pushing down. It's just. It's a primitive response. So, again, common things happen commonly. Yeah, there's some outliers in the bar.
2: One of the things that I was, was intrigued about was it's a really minor detail, but uh, when you're looking down at your feet and you have the possibility of your um, shoes and your cleats being close to the cranks or spread apart, is there yeah. an optimum or is it particular to each person? Um, and I've always wondered where should I – you know, and obviously my calves hit the drink bottle if I'm too close to, yeah. to, to the crank. And yeah. I've always wondered, you know, am I better off having them w- my feet wider or?
1: Is- so there certainly is a, a sweet spot, Jerry. Um, you know, one of the reason why, it, it, and you, you're referring to Q angle, which is essentially the angle between um, the ASIS, which is the, that knob of bone at the front of your hips, which runs all the way down the front of your thigh, um, oh, sorry, against the line it runs all the right way in front of your thigh. So it's, again, essentially women who have broader hips have, a, have a, a wider Q angle than men. That doesn't mean, though, that their knees are further apart. So the thing, I, I generally try to um, push people's cleats further in and get them further over their big toe. Really big people, I ask them to have the longer spindle um, pedals, so you can add four mils on either side with the um, the longer spindle cranks. I think it's oh, I might be getting this wrong. I think it's twenty four mil against twenty eight mil. or might be yeah, anyway. Varies, some variation of that. Um, to be to be honest, it, it, it depends also on your on your injury profile. The the thing about people's quads in general, and yeah, this is the other thing we sort of half touched on before, because. It's not like the glute, where the glute is attached only across one joint, where uh, your hip joint, whereas your quads are attached above your hip joint and below the knee joint. So you tend to be able to get your, your quads in range most of the time or at least part of your quad. So I guess, you know, in part, um, your cue angle, you've got four quadriceps, you can engage them most of the time. So, yeah. Uh, for you, Jerry, it's just so, you, so your calves don't hit your, uh, your bottle cage. Me too.
0: I just want to pause there for a sec um, just to ask you because we'll be going like just over 45 minutes. How long have you got? Um, yeah, I've got
1: uh, yeah three more minutes, so <laughs> it's a good time. Yeah, <laughs> Okay, good. Yeah. I've got a I'm 3.30, so I better scoot yeah, up. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm glad I asked that. Um,
2: what do you mean you've got a 3.30? If I go there at 3.30, I'm seeing you at 4, so... <laughs>
0: hate to be on time <laughs> we can push it slightly past 3 30 then now we'll, we'll finish off here so um we've got plenty more questions so we might have to get you back on to answer them i'm sure the listeners have more as well but um i can see you've, you've got a lot of thoughts on this obviously you've done a lot of bike fits um what do you want the listeners to take home what's a what's a take-home message you want because you can get overwhelmed with the amount of small changes you could make uh, and there is a lot we've already spoken about uh, already so what, what's the kind of message you want to get out there
1: I just say to people that um, it's not about what your bike looks like. It, you know, the, the, the quip that I always have for people is that when people say, I oh, don't like the look of that, it looks ugly, is, you know, people aren't going to notice it when you're passing them. Because realistically, as long as you're cycling fast, like that's panache, that looks good. Yeah. If you're cycling well. Um, it's only really you who notices the small variations on your bike or what it might look like. And it's great that you want to like your bike, but realistically, it's not the most important thing. As long as you're feeling good on the bike, well, you probably are are looking good too. So, yeah, just worry less about aesthetic and more about what you're actually doing on it. And I think from what I know of all the Donnellys, (laughs) That's something that resonates strongly with them. Well, I didn't have an option to look good, I guess. But um uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, I <I'm> won't <laughs> But realistically, a fast cyclist is a good looking cyclist. So just try and be fast. Don't try and look fast. You know, this is the go fast podcast, yeah. You know what I mean, and I think it's not the look fast podcast. No I right, don't to be that guy. Yeah
0: correct. yeah correct well dad is there anything you want to ask Mitch before we jumped off before we let him go
2: no look I, I just think the listeners need to understand that uh, the bike fit is so important in uh, in your outcome as a bike rider and and uh, a really well trained fit athlete who's sitting shockingly aerodynamically and both comfort wise will get a poor outcome um, as compared to someone who has got everything right including their training program and a really good comfortable bike fit will we'll actually have a better, better outcome. And that's kind of what I think the purpose of getting you on today is to really get that message home, Mitch. Yeah,
1: it, it, And it, you know what, Jordan, you, you're quite right. It, it's bloody complicated. And so, you know, stick to the the, the meat, meat, and, meat and vegetable type option, get the main things right first, and then worry about spending money on race wheels and bars and all sorts of stuff. Because realistically – that's where the good money is, like in being comfortable. Because, you know, once you've got a position, there's some fiddling that you can do around it. But, yeah, it's the big ticket items I want people to spend time on because I love people cycling, you know. It's a great sport. So get comfortable on your bike um, and use some of the tricks that we've uh, given you today. And if you can't, come and see us at Shinbone. Love to look after you.
0: That was going to be my next point is uh, thank you very much for coming on. And if people do want to come get in contact, either get a bike fit or if they want some help with injury uh, prevention or an injury that they have, how can they get in touch? Uh,
1: you can go and find us at uh, uh or ring us here on 9329 5454. No, no, we're uh, glad to help anyone out. It doesn't have to be an athlete. And, um, yeah, I think during COVID, oh, so glad I'm, I remembered on this. Um, everyone I know you're spending a lot more time on your trainers, and I know Jerry's probably been pushing this. Make sure you get out of the saddle on a regular basis. Give you give yourself a rest. Pedaling in the same position over and over and over again for hours and hours. Terrible for you. So just regular position changes, please. It'll reduce your chance of injury.
0: Love your work, Mitch. Thank you so much for coming on. We can't ha- wait to have you on again as I'm sure the listeners will feel the same. Um, yeah, thank you Take very your time.
1: much. Cheers. Very appreciated.
2: Thanks, mate.